This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Trevor. Gallantly, Paul. Paul, how are you doing? I am doing great. I've had a have had a good week, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to talk today. Feeling quite quite gallant, I might add. Yes. Yeah. Well, you just were telling me that you. Uh, you know, made it home late last night, and here you are early on a Saturday morning, ready to record. That's right. <laughs> on my white gallon. steed. Yeah, on my white <laughs> steed, ready to go. Yep. No, it's it's always funny, like, getting up early for work or certain things. It's like you're dragging your feet, kind of bleary-eyed. But <laughs> for this, it's always fun. I, I always get amped up. I enjoy it so much. So not a problem. Yeah. No, I, I woke up a little bit before I was planning on it this morning. Which, when that happens on a work week, it's like, oh, do you think I can fall back asleep today? I'm like, no, just get up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's nice. It's fun. All right. Well, listeners, we are here today to talk about the work of Scholastique Mukasanga. This is an author focus episode. We'll be going through the five books that we have in English without necessarily spoiling anything. You know, we're not. We understand there are probably a lot of people listening who have not read her work. So we'll be talking a little bit more general, sharing favorite passages, some of the meaningful themes. Um, I think these would be hard to spoil anyway, since it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily a secret (laughs) as to what happens in any of them. Right. (laughs) But we... um, we we wanted to start. You know, we'll get into what are you reading here in a minute. But first things first, uh, these books deal with some very heavy topics, and so we wanted to give a trigger warning uh, about what we'll be discussing. Not that Paul and I plan on being, you know, hopefully insensitive or or you know flippant about what the topics are, uh, but. There, there, there's some rough stuff that happens in them. Mm-hmm. I don't know what we'll what we'll talk about specifically, but you know, yeah. this is about the Rwandan genocide and many of the things that happen with that. So, just a little bit of a warning. Um, we, of course, understand if uh, this is not for everybody, though. I think both of us might agree these books are very important and vital, and I'm glad that they exist. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would add, too, that if anybody is on the fence due to subject matter, we'll also probably talk about this, but they're they're also filled with so much love and, mm-hmm. and the way that she handles it. I mean, she does not shirk any of the brutalities that happened, but it is not just all about that. There's also the rich traditions that led up to the Rwandan genocide and, and the process of healing and all kinds of other topics. So I just wanted to throw that out there early mm-hmm. in case anybody was, you know, on the fence about it. There is a lot beyond just the realities of what happened. Exactly. All right. So we'll get into that into a minute. But Paul, what have you been reading? Have you had a chance to read on a busy work week? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have um, some. I, I have some. So I took... I decided since I was going to be on a plane and at a hotel, sometimes I'll take like, you know, I have a stack of books that I want to get to, but they're also kind of halfway out the door and they're like kind of in that limbo. And so I grabbed one of those because I figured it'd be a good chance to just kind of have this little few days to maybe read it on the plane and then clear some space on the shelf. And so I had one that I, I bought a long time ago at the tattered cover called Bad Luck Way, A Year of the Ragged Edge of the West, A Year on the Ragged Edge of the West by Bryce Andrews. And this one, I just kind of picked up on a whim one day. I think it was on like the discount rack and it's really good. It's a memoir about a young man who comes from Seattle and he's kind of, you know, somewhat of a city boy and he becomes more and more interested in like ranching and horses and things like that. And so he ends up 
working on this ranch called the Sun Ranch in southwest Montana. And so he's kind of a greenhorn, I guess you'd say. It's like this huge ranch, 20,000 acres, and it's very much still remote and wild. And and so it's at the beginning, it's kind of about him just learning to to exist and, and learn his job. But it brings in, you know, as many people may know, there was wolves were reintroduced into that area. You know, I don't know when that was, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, something yeah, like the mid nineties. I remember it because I wrote about it for my school newspaper. Oh, <laughs> nice. Wow. And you still remember it. You get an A plus. Yeah. So as it moves along, it starts to talk about that because there's this pack of wolves that lives kind of on the edge of, of the ranch. They live on some, you know, some, I don't know if it's like a wildlife reserve or whatever, but they, they will drift over into the ranch land because it's this huge area. And so they start to, you know, they'll, they'll notice like elk and deer carcasses and things like that, but tensions grow and they begin to go after the cattle. And so at first I was a little bit, I didn't know where he was going to go with it. And I was like, ah, am I reading the wrong book? Because, you know, I understand the tensions, but I don't necessarily want to read some screed against (laughs) wolves and, and the importance of cattle, even though I know that there's a lot of gray areas there. But what I really liked about it is it was very well handled. He ends up having a lot of like moral debates within himself because many of the other ranch hands and the owners have varying degrees of sympathy for the wolves. And some of them have none, you know, some of them treat it almost like a game to go out and try to hunt them and things. But for him, it's this very tough decision and, and a lot of wrestling back and forth. So I ended up, I, I thought it was going to be kind of a write-off, like, eh, you know, just something to kill the time, but I ended up liking it a lot more than I thought I would. So yeah, lots of good nature writing and things like that as well. So I ended up, yeah, kind of buzzing through that. And then one that you mentioned recently, I, I listened to the audio and actually just finished it as well. And that is Sea of Tranquility by, mm-hmm. get her name wrong, Emily St. John Mandel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said you read that fairly recently. I, I actually have, I read The Glass Hotel oh, okay. in preparation to read Sea of Tranquility, which I have right in front of me. Gotcha. In a really nice edition that I went and bought, like specifically to read it one weekend, mm-hmm. and then I didn't start it. Okay, and you know, so no, no I haven't read it yet. Okay, I, well, I got it mixed. Yeah, I didn't actually realize until I was reading a few summaries afterwards that it was kind of a loose sequel to the Glass Hotel. So I, I guess I technically cheated, read them out of order. <laughs> but um, I, I've talked about her like she's one of those that I keep coming back to, even though I didn't necessarily love. Um, her, I'm now I'm spacing on the name of her big book, um, the Station Eleven. Station Eleven, like I, I I was intrigued by it, but I didn't quite fall in love with it. Mm-hmm. But again, she's one of those that I keep eyeing because there's just something about her writing and the way she does things. Yeah, that there's just softness she, to it somehow. Yeah, exactly. And so this was really, I mean, it's a really interesting book. It, I won't give away too much, but it follows several different characters, and it, it has very specifically labeled time periods where it jumps around and there's a little bit of a i don't know a time travel element i guess you would say and there's also a strong pandemic theme I, apparently she wrote it during the pandemic and so one of the one of the threads throughout is is this pandemic that comes along and its impact on an author and her family so um i think it might be the first kind of pandemic adjacent book that i can remember reading and i've been a little leery because mm. sometimes when you read it i don't know like when there was a lot of september 11th novels a few of them were done well but a lot of it just seemed like it was kind of this moment that people were kind of not cashing in on necessarily but do you know what i mean like it was just kind of in the zeitgeist and that doesn't always interest me 
but this one it was really good so i would i would look forward to hearing what you think of it when you get to it okay i need to do it i mean i bought it it was over like spring break last year i i had work the first day and Mm -hmm. then nothing afterwards and so i raced out to get it thinking oh this is what i'm going to read over spring break while my kids are playing and all that I don't remember what I did read or what what did happen, but it wasn't that by the wasn't time that. I got home. So it wasn't on my today list. I yeah, exactly. put it on my today list, which is really frustrating. It stayed on my TBR. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be there when you need it. But I would say that whenever you get to it, it is, it's very compelling. And it would have been a good one for something like a spring break, because like the other works of hers that I've read, it's like you said, there's a softness to it. It's a page turner in some ways, but it still has some depth to it as well. It's not just like a, a airport novel. So, yeah, I think you'll really enjoy it. Cool. That is yeah. good to hear. Is How about you? Hear. What have you been reading? So I've been reading a lot. It's been kind of fun. I've, I really do think that having the today list has made a difference. And I think having some of these read-alongs hmm. that make it so that I don't feel like I have to fully commit to a book for like the whole day. Yeah. I can read 20, 25 pages of the, the hearing trumpet and then put it down, enjoying it, looking forward to the next day and then, you know, start something else or do something else. So Mm -hmm. aside from all of the Mukasanga that we'll talk about, I did also read Martin Riker's uh, The Guest Lecture, which comes out this week. Nice. And really, really enjoyed this book. I thought it was fantastic. It's it's about a a woman. She's a guest lecturer. Her name is Abby. And it starts as she's in a hotel room bed, you know, uh, the night before her guest lecture on economics at an economics forum. She'll be talking about Keynes and about his you know, optimism and all of that. And she's lying in bed next to her daughter and her husband, you know, their young daughter, they came with her. And it's all about that night that she's sitting there trying to go through her talk at first. And the way that she tries to do it is thinking, okay, I'm going to go through the rooms of my house, you know, that kind of classic rhetorical method of each room will stand for a section of my talk so that I can, you know, visualize it and walk through it. And as she does it, the guide that she has is actually uh, John Maynard Keynes. So mm. she talks to him and, you know, it's her, of course, and they kind of talk about that. But this book, while it starts out there and I really enjoyed all of that, of course, she's not entirely awake through a lot of it. She has a lot of other things that pop up as she's going through it. a lot of other fears and anxieties and and thoughts and kind of internal battles and dreams. You're never quite sure where we're at in terms of consciousness Hmm. as the book progresses. And I really, really enjoyed the whole thing. I thought it was a, a, a really good book. And I'll share just a little bit of it. You know, this is from relatively early. She is, you know, she'll get there where she's talking about her talk. And then it just kind of drifts as, as we do into something adjacent, maybe. <laughs> right. So here she is talking about memories and and uh, the past and all of that. And she goes, maybe the value of memories, as with any other commodity, is a function of scarcity. When you first notice that you have some, you have relatively few so that they seem to matter more. You're fascinated with the fact that you have them at all. Self-awareness, growing up. 
But as you begin to accumulate memories with the years, their relative utility diminishes. You grow into a more realistic appreciation of their worth. Then eventually, even that dwindles. Finally, there are so many memories, and you're so used to having them around, so accustomed to their plenitude, that your demand curve approaches zero, and your past, your entire personal history, seems hardly worth the effort of remembering at all. Oh, wow. It's not the most positive thought, and not even one that I think maybe if she were fully awake, she would agree with. You know, she's mm-hmm. she's not in the best of moods um, as, as this night progresses. But I also like how she follows it. Did I just discover an economic explanation for why young people are self-absorbed and why old people can't be bothered? <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> the Nobel Prize is still on the table. <laughs> I so, like that a lot. I really, really enjoyed this book. Um, the other one that I'm reading that I'm sure that if, if you haven't read it yet, you will love it is, uh, one that we heard about from Mark Haber. Mm. It is Amina Kane's A Horse at Night on Writing. Yeah. I haven't um, read it yet. I really want to. Oh, it's, it's just fantastic. I, and she's going through, I don't know. I don't know the best way to put it. It's almost like you're just sitting down listening to her think about certain things, certain topics, you know, writing, reading, loneliness, solitude. Uh, She talks about a ton of writers and filmmakers that you and I both love. My, Mm -hmm. you know, she goes into Agnes Varda, for example, and Chantal Ackerman, and in particular, News from Home. And I'm just like, whoa, this is so fantastic. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the, the, just the writing she has about her own writing is, is pretty fun. I'm, I'm going to share a little bit of this one too. It says, of all the forms language can take, the sentence is the one I'm most drawn to. Since my phrasing is plain and spare, as writer Karen Balin once asked me, can a sentence be a shaker room? I didn't always think it was. Long, rich, complicated sentences in which a surprise is hidden. I thought whoever wrote them were the real si- sentence writers. And they are. I love to read such sentences. But I see now that I hide things in my sentences too. I thought because I write slim books, I was already working within the smallest unit possible, which is a unit I like, where I write best. Now I see that sometimes my focus gets even smaller, and that I am not always writing a sentence to tell a story exactly, but simply to be in the space of a sentence, to make things appear in it, to see what is possible. Um, there, I've marked so many parts of this book already, and I'm only on page like 40. Wow. (laughs) So let me me read one more that I just really love. She talks kind of about your, your sense of awareness of the world around you and how it can be different if you're alone or if you're with somebody and that maybe neither one is better than the other, but they're both important. So you kind of, you know, can use both of those. Uh, she also talks about how reading can, or, or watching a film or something like that can become a more complicated, well, maybe not more complicated, but a more, uh, it's more than just the, the thing you're reading. It's, it's you. We've talked about this a little bit. It's where mm-hmm. you're at. It's how you're feeling. It's the room. It's the, the other sounds. And I just really like this part. Uh, she says, reading all on its own is one of the best things. And yet, isn't it nice to read in bed at the end of a long day, the darkness of the window meeting the soft light inside the room? Or on the beach, the hot sand and the sound of the waves coming together with the book. Things combine 
to become other things, other kinds of experiences. Wow. But yeah, I'm just really, really, really enjoying this. And uh, this book, uh, this is a little bit of a unintentional uh, uh, serendipity or synchronicity or whatever, but uh, Amina Kane's book is published by Dorothy, a publishing project, mm-hmm. which is the press that Martin Riker, I just talked about the guest lecture, he and uh, Danielle Dutton uh, uh, founded t- together. And so that was a little bit of, of fun, you know, bringing it to all together and and reading all of those. So I thought, why not round this out by making sure readers um, are also aware of the work of Danielle Dutton. Uh, mm. She is also a writer and her story, um, let's see, it's called My Wonderful Description of Flowers was published in the New Yorker in early December. And check out this opening, Paul. Okay. Last night, my husband dreamed I left him, though my husband never dreams. Or if he does, he dreams of nothing, of sending an email, petting the cat. I live not in dreams, but in contemplation of a reality that is perhaps the future, Rilke, and not my husband, said. My husband brought up his dream over breakfast, but I had an early day, errands, a million meetings. I was almost out the door. That's her first paragraph. I love, I love Mm. it. And I I love the story. It is, it is... um, fittingly uh much like the guest lecture actually almost gets into a bit of dream space you feel like you're following this narrator uh through just you know after after her husband says this and her going out and about with her day but it itself turns into more of a surreal um dreamlike story Mm. that not everything i'm like i remember the first time i read it thinking what where, where am I? Did I miss a step? <laughs> right. How did we end up here? And it's, it's also very good. Uh, f- you know, I'm, I'm in the weird phase of reading apparently right now. I'm, I've got the hearing um, trumpet by Leonore Carrington going on with mm-hmm. my, my read along. Um, I got the diaries of Franz Kafka. It is it, all finding, in. finding a, a, you know, more kitchen sink realism, that's just not happening right now. <laughs> I love when I can get into those spaces. I mean, there's something very fascinating about those types of books where what you just mentioned happened where you're reading and you think you know where you are. And then 15 minutes later, you realize you're somewhere completely different. And it's like, wait, <laughs> like you have to almost retrace your steps and figure out exactly how the person, how the author took you from one space to another. So, so <laughs> seamlessly without you even noticing, I, I love that style of book. Um, and it sounds like you got all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Have you had any wild dreams yourself while reading all this stuff? I don't know. I'm, I'm a little bit more like the husband. I yeah. have normal, I, I have weird dreams, but it, it is very hard for me to remember them uh, beyond the, the minute way. or two after I wake up. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so yeah, we'll have I, to I, I know that I have had some, some funky dreams over the last week, but who knows what they are right now. Yeah. Well, if, if anybody was going to give you funky dreams, it would be Leonora Carrington. Yeah. That's such a fun book. It's my second time reading it and I understand it no better, but I, I'm enjoying it probably even more this time around. Yeah. We're, we're almost done with it. We'll nice. finish it uh, before this episode goes out. Do you know, remind me, I know that the lists are everywhere, the schedule, but what's the next one in the lineup for the uh, Vicky project? Baum's Grand Hotel. Okay. Interesting. That's one that I would really... 
I would like to read all of these, but that was one when I saw the list that I was like, oh, I, I might want to jump on board. So maybe I'll have to. I told you I just finished a couple of books. So mm-hmm. I have an open slate. Maybe that'll be the one that fills it. Well, it starts March 1st, Paul, and you can't cheat on this. You've got to start it on March 1st. So you've got some time to prepare even more. You, you know, February or March? <laughs> or sorry, February. February okay. 1st. I was gonna say, yeah, then I'll have a lot of time <laughs> if it's March. No, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe I will do that. That's because. I had already wanted to read it for a long time. And then when we had our hotel books episode, mm-hmm. it really made me even more excited. But of course, it's been a few months since then and I still haven't picked it up. Yeah. And it's a, it's going to be another reread for me. We talked on our episode about rereading books and it's not something I tend to do a whole lot of, but, and I, and I didn't plan on doing it with these, but I am enjoying it so much and it's been so easy to Mm -hmm. do that I don't want to, to miss one of them. And so I, you know, like I say, the hearing trumpet, this is my second time through it. It'll be my second time through grand hotel, though that one's even further in my past. Uh, So yeah, I'm excited to reread maybe a handful of these and have the others be totally new books. I've been wanting to read. (laughs) Right. Uh, It's just been fun. It's exciting. Yeah. I just, that topic of rereading, I think we'll definitely do an episode on that someday, but you know, we can start the segue if you want to into Scholastic Mukasanga mm-hmm. because I had only read one of hers, but rereading the cockroaches or mm-hmm. not the rereading cockroaches for this project, I got a lot out of it the first time, but reading it the second time really floored me. I, I think the value of rereading, you know, not like I'm the first person to have said this, but you can't overstate how certain books, how much they grow when you read them a second time, sometimes right after the first time, but or sometimes years or decades later. It's just fascinating the way they can hit you differently at different times and how different parts resonate or different books resonate more than they would have. Or I'm sure there are obviously cases where maybe it doesn't have the same impact it did the first time. But in the case of the cockroaches, uh, I keep saying the, in the case of cockroaches, <laughs> um, Wow, just rereading that book was so powerful. And I don't know, do you want to just start there or should we step yeah. back a little bit first? Well, so Cockroaches was a reread for me as well. I read it mm-hmm. back in what did it come out in 2016, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was fantastic then. For some reason, I didn't re- read any of the other of her I books didn't. as they came mm-hmm. out. I hadn't, and I hadn't read Our Lady of the Nile, which. Archipelago had published before uh, Cockroaches. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that was the case. It's definitely heavy, but it also went down well. But I agree with you this time. Part part of it is the rereading and part of it's also realizing I'm going to talk about this with somebody here in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I better, you know, what am I going to say? I know. And so things stood out in a, in a way that maybe they don't if I'm just, you know, reading through a book. Mm-hmm. So Yes. Well, maybe let's step back just a little bit Mm -hmm. um, and get into who Scholastic Mukasanga is Mm -hmm. uh, in general. I mean, neither of us know her (laughs) too well, Um, but she is uh, a French writer uh, who spent her youth in Rwanda. Uh, She was a Tutsi. Uh, uh, born in the late 1950s, I want to say 56, 57, 55, maybe even. I should have looked that up, but at any rate, around then. 56. Uh, 
56. And this is shortly before her whole family is expelled from where they were living at the time uh, to go with other Tootsies to one of the worst parts of Rwanda, you know, barren, you know, Mm -hmm. few trees, uh, sterile ground. That's where they were relegated essentially by the Hutu authorities. And the thing that I didn't know until reading these, you know, I knew that the, there was the 1994 Rwandan genocide. Um, I'd heard about that. Uh, Not very much, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like something I knew as well as I should have uh, when it comes to, you know, significant and important events happened during my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, but I knew about it a little bit and I knew from her biography that she had already kind of moved away. She had escaped essentially mm-hmm. uh, Rwanda and was living in France when this happened and lost her family, her parents, her siblings, uh, nieces, nephews, you know, in-laws. The so only many. other person to escape was her brother who had all, you know, they had both left at about the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and then when her brother went back after the genocide, to see if he could find anybody who survived. I think he found two of their nieces had survived somehow. And she puts in in cockroaches, no genocide is perfect. I know. That and, line just uh, floored me because it's so, oh, I don't yeah. know, powerful, cynical. I don't know how you want to say it, but man, yeah. And so the thing that I did not know is that this genocide had been on the you know on their horizon all of the time that she was alive yeah it wasn't something that just happened surprisingly you know they they essentially knew that one day because they had neighbors who were taken out and killed and they had times when um you know men in trucks would come down and and look like they were hunting they just knew that one of these days it, it is going to to happen for decades, they they lived under that shadow, that horrific shadow, and it affected everything that they did. It affected mm-hmm. every way that they were able to to live peacefully in their own homes, in their own skin, as they're trying themselves to just, you know, grow together as a family, keep a culture alive, you know, eat food, uh, go to school, and eventually to try and figure out how can we get at least one of you out so that a part of us survives. Mm-hmm. And the the parts of cockroaches where she talks about them, you know, her parents in discussions and finally figuring we need to send Scholastique and her brother away so that they're survivors. You know, this is still, de- you know, a, way, a while before the 1994 genocide, but they like just said they were already coming. planning. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. It's yeah. amazing. And, all of these books, obviously, that is the shadow that hangs over her entire writing career. I found, I don't know if you saw, there was an interview in 2014 with Publishers Weekly where mm-hmm. she described, you know, kind of why she writes. And it talks about that lifestyle that basically vanished, that the, all the comforts and the everyday things that they were used to, how it was all just taken away. And there's just a quote from her that's really powerful. It's, you know, she talks about the vanished everyday life of women crushing sorghum under a stone, 
men squabbling around a jug of banana beer and little girls dragging their dolls by a string. And then this is the part where it kind of, you can tell the source of all of her, her writing. If I close my eyes, I walk endlessly down that ill-trod path that's no longer taken by anyone. They have fallen to the machete. They don't even have gravestones. So when I close my eyes, I know why I write. And I thought, wow, I mean, that is just so rough. But throughout these, she, you can sense that she feels a responsibility and I don't know if an obligation is too strong of a word, but to record these events, to talk about her family, her neighbors, her, where she grew up and just, you know, I think she talks a lot about this this idea of, of the ghosts that kind of haunt her. And I think there's probably, it seems like some survivor's guilt. Why was I Mm -hmm. one of the few who was able to escape this? And so you can just see throughout all these books, the different formats that she takes Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's directly about her family. Other times it's fiction, but it's always there in the background of her honoring what her, the people who are gone, but also just wrestling with the heaviness of what that all means. And the survivor's guilt, but also the sense of how can it be possible that I am still alive and I still exist when they don't like, yeah. How is that even possible? Yeah. You know, this is not a world that should be, this is not a, I mean, I, I don't know that it, toward the beginning of cockroaches, just as you're talking about that publisher's weekly quote, uh, why I, I know why I write. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talks about this several times throughout her books, you know, a little bit of why she's doing this. And it of course is all on the same ideas, but I just think she puts it so well every time. Um, she, this is when she, she kind of goes back. Um, she's talking about the land where she grew up and how, it's hard to see any vestige of her own past. It's all been torn up, destroyed, the, the home, everything. She, she wouldn't probably even know this is where we lived if it weren't mm-hmm. just that she knew. Um, and she's talking about her parents. She says, uh, her dad in particular says, he would be killed there along with my mother. Nothing remains of all that now. The killers attacked the house until every last trace was wiped away. The bush has covered everything over. It's as if we never existed. And yet my family once lived there, humiliated, afraid, waiting day after day for what was to come, what we didn't have a word for, genocide. And I alone preserve the memory of it. That's why I'm writing this. And I don't know who else is doing this project, but she's, she's very right if she didn't. You know, uh, very few of us would have this story. Mm-hmm. It's sad, but it's not something that we g- captured our interest on and focused on on our own. Mm-hmm. As, you know, Western culture and rather uh, involved in our own our own problems and honestly racially not too aware or concerned about uh, the problems in Africa and I just think that these books are so important for for her doing this and it's not all about the horrors themselves Mm -hmm. you know the barefoot woman the second Mm -hmm. book that she wrote is about uh, it's about her mom but it's yeah. also about just their growing up and their childhood and their home and their food that they would make. And, 
you know, their story times and their religion and their, her family. I mean, she, she is writing about these, um, these moments. Sometimes it's always there, the specter of what's to come and the fear of what's to come that they felt even in those moments. But she is trying to, to capture a lot in these very short books. Absolutely. And she does the, the intro to, to uh, the barefoot woman. And like you said, I I think that book is almost, it's a love, love, love letter to her mom in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like so much of it is focused on so many like tender, loving details of her mom. But the last paragraph of the introduction, just who I knew from the beginning, I was like, Oh boy, this is going to be so hard to get through, but it's so loving. It says, mama, I wasn't there to cover your body. And all I have left is words, words in a language you didn't understand to do as you asked. And I'm all alone with my feeble words. And on the pages of my notebook, over and over, my sentences weave a shroud for your missing body. Like, oh man, it's just, it's so sad, but there's just that sweetness too. Like, Mm -hmm. she wasn't there, she feels guilty, but like, this is her way of kind of showing her mom how much she loved and appreciated her. And just, oh, that is it sufficient? Mm -hmm. She would say, absolutely not. No. But it's what she has. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's so touching, and and the love that she has for her family, um, it's it's beautifully written in mm. in all of these. It isn't just a. She's not writing from nostalgia of a lost culture. She's not writing just to just to put these people on pages. I mean she loved these people so much mm-hmm. and beyond the the sadness, beyond the fear, beyond the guilt, beyond the, the sense of, I can't believe they're gone. And I don't even know where they are. I don't have a grave I can go to. Are they one mm-hmm. of these many skulls in this memorial um, in our, in our village mm-hmm. or are they not, are they buried somewhere else somehow? You know what, what happened? I have no idea. I can't, I can't even know all of that's there, but there's also just, just a child and a sister's affection for her family. I know. And, and I love it. And, you know, talking about her, you know, her sister, giving her sister piggyback rides and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or it, it's, it's hit with more layers, of course, but the, the also kind of kernel of affection and love is, is there all the time. Well, I, it's so beautifully done. I, it's so delicately done. It is. It's really delicately done. And so throughout all these books, the, the roles of the women in mm-hmm. that culture are just so, the details are, are so beautiful of just, you know, them walking home from somewhere and they go to each neighbor's house. They have certain rituals, they gossip, they hug, they do these elaborate mm-hmm. things. And and she talks about how long it takes, but it's like this comforting ritual that every day you go and you see your different neighbors, you talk to them, you just the community that evolves and again like you said it's so delicately done because implied in all of that is that so much of that is now gone and been torn away but even as they are forced into exile and have to move the way that they they strive to replicate so many of the parts of their culture that are so important to them and they still it's just you know (laughs) the resilience and and the importance of that culture and the way that they do um continue to kind of work and i think one of the things that i loved i think it's in this book 
some of them, you know, it comes up several different times, but the roles of, of the mothers and the women in helping the children deal with all of this, like when, like you said, they lived under this shadow and this threat for so long. And so there would be soldiers that would be on the roads, you know, like terrorizing the children, like shooting their guns, sometimes even throwing grenades at them. Sometimes it was not quite that violent and it was just heckling them. But these kids are living under this incredibly stressful situation. And they talk about how the mothers and the aunts and the sisters would find ways to distract them, whether it's games, storytelling, helping them study. And it's just the the love and the comfort, even in these incredibly tough situations, it, it shines through just how much these people cared for each other and how, you know, how much of a comfort it was for these children during those horrific times. I, I loved some of those parts where they were just talking about, you know, them telling stories and, and playing games and, and just keeping the children, you know, there's no way they can ignore what's happening, but it's not the main focus. There's, I'll just quickly, there's a line here that's in the barefoot woman and it says, talking about the women, those were the beneficent mothers, the benevolent mothers, the ones who fed, protected, counseled, and consoled, the guardians of the family and the community, the ones the killers slaughtered as if to wipe out the very sources of life. And so again, it's, it's so hard because the, the last line just, you know, that they were slaughtered, but it's the idea of trying to wipe out the sources of life because they were just these vital people who created within that community, like, you know, the, the sources of life. I mean, they, they were everything. They were making these wonderful meals. They were nurturing. They were out in the fields working. They were smoking their pipes and drinking their beer together and, and talking and just, uh, it's amazing how in such a slim book, you feel like you've learned so much about what a wonderful upbringing she had, despite these horrific circumstances that were happening. There's a part that I think shows the depths of love, you know, kind of going both ways that really well, it's the part where at the beginning of the barefoot woman, where it says, my mother had only one thought in her head, one single project day in and day out, one sole reason to go on surviving, saving her children. For that, she tried every possible tactic, devised every conceivable stratagem. We needed some way to flee. We needed some place to hide. And the reason why I really like this part is it's almost always futile. And some of them are things that you you know they're not going to work from the get-go, like digging a tunnel from where they're at to Burundi. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's inconceivable. It's simply not going to happen. But she tried it. Yeah. But she she didn't want to just throw it out. It was, there's no good, re- no good option, but I'm going to explore and try all of them. I'm not going to be defeated. I mean, that she actually tried. And it does come up a little later, this hole that she started to dig. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she tried. Mm-hmm. And it's, it just shows the depths of her own love and, and desire for them to survive that she's like, well, this, you know, digging miles long underneath the earth, let, let, let's give it a shot. And, and the yeah. com- competition a little bit with neighbors, like we know that they probably have secret means of escape that they can't talk to us about. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, maybe it'll be compromised, but also the little bit of resentment, like I know they're up to something over there, mm-hmm. but, you know, but we've got our own secrets. I mean, it's just the, all of that is so harrowing, but it shows the, 
the desires for this family to survive. And I, I think it's hor- horrific that she's like, I, I, I've got to f- have my children survive. And that eventually becomes, I got to at least have one of them survive. I know. And, yeah. you know, no. and that's one thing that comes up often is this, this role of education is, as a key to escape, you know, like mm-hmm. they talk about how the different parents in the village would really, really focus on education and, you know, ways to, there's contests, you know, around education to get their children to, they can win bread as a reward and different things like that. And a lot of it is told in a fairly lighthearted way because the competitions for the bread, and then they would, you know, take it and divide it among their friends or eat it all themselves and different things. But just this role of different, like you said, there's the literal escape tunnels, but then there's also that idea of like something like education where there's this light Yeah, we can get, and it ended up working. I mean, that was literally how her and her brother made it to France was because they were able to get educations. They had to, like you said, almost handpick at least a couple of kids who can escape and get out of this. And it ended up saving their lives and, you know, moving on to her being able to tell this story. So uh, like you said, it's like, they almost have like drills with the mother, with the children, like as the soldiers are starting to terrorize, they talk about how they would just kick down their doors and come in and just kind of trash the place and leave. And just having them kind of live in this, I think I can't remember. I have it in my notes. It might be in one of the other stories, but they talk about how it became almost like a systemic system of, of terror. Like it was organized and they would do it very methodically. And there's talk about how her mom would have the kids do different things, go hide Mm -hmm. here, try hiding. You know, I don't think it was literally under the, you know, behind the curtains, but different things like, and I have to wonder having had young children myself, what you just said, I don't think she probably thought any of it would really work. Some of it is just for her own sake, but some of it I think is just you have to provide some some comfort or at least some semblance of you'll be okay, like we'll figure this out and, and to help the kids have something to hold on to and, and keep them distracted and focused on other things. So yeah, the roles of her mother in particular and, and the women throughout these books was maybe my very favorite part of the entire thing. Yeah. There's, as we're talking about, you mentioned the the other path of escape, like schooling and education. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it just hor- horrific in Cockroaches when Mukasanga goes back? She sneaks back in to oh, yes. Rwanda after escaping to visit her family. And, you know, she's she's got some ways figured out that she'll be able to get out again. And how happy her parents were to see her. And also that they were like, you actually have to turn around, get out now. Yeah. Like you, you shouldn't be here. We, we, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that mixed feeling of, we, we love you. We want to be with you. We want to see you get away from us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You can't help us. And we can't be the reason that you don't get out of here again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just the, the, so the first three books that, that we have from Mukasanga, uh, Cockroaches, uh, which was translated uh, by Jordan Stump, uh, mm-hmm. and the Barefoot Woman, translated by Jordan Stump, <laughs> and Igifu, translated by Jordan Stump. These are the first three books Mukasanga wrote, and she called them her tombeau de papier, meaning her tomb of paper, mm-hmm. according to that Publishers Weekly piece mm-hmm. you referred to a little earlier. Um, this is almost her. You know, these are a little bit more nonfiction. 
you know, cockroaches mm-hmm. being almost a straight memoir, the barefoot woman having, having segments, but kind of based on her mom and on their culture. Igifu is almost like, I'm going to talk about these subjects. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if you, you know, how much you want to share from these, but I thought that these pieces in Igifu talking more about, you know, grief, fear, uh, hunger, mm-hmm. the, they're Beauty. just fantastic. Beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, here's how the book begins. Gifu. You were a displaced little girl like me, sent off to Niamata for being a Tootsie. So you knew just as I did the implacable enemy who lived deep inside us. The merciless overlord, forever demanding a tribute we couldn't hope to scrape up. The implacable tormentor, relentlessly gnawing at our bellies and dimming our eyes. You know who I'm talking about. Igifu. Hunger. Given to us at birth, like a cruel guardian angel. Igifu woke you long before the chattering birds announced the first light of dawn, and he stretched out the blazing afternoon hours. He stayed at your side on the mat to bedevil your sleep. He was the heartless magician who conjured up lying mirages, the sight of a heap of steaming beans or a beautiful white ball of manioc paste, the glorious smell of the sauce on a huge dish of bananas, the sound of roast corn crackling over a charcoal fire. And then just when you were about to reach out for that mouth-watering food, it would all dissolve like the mist of the, on the swamp. And then you heard a gifu cackling deep in your stomach. Our parents or rather our grandparents, knew how to keep Igifu quiet. Not that they were gluttons. For a Rwandan, there is no greater sin. No, our parents had no fear of hunger because they had milk to feed Igifu, and Igifu lapped it up in delight and kept still, sated by all the cows of Rwanda. But our cows had been killed, and we'd been abandoned on the sterile soil of the Bugisera, Igifu's kingdom. And in my case, Igifu led me to the gates of death. I don't hate him for that. In fact, I'm sorry those gates didn't open. Sorry I was pulled away from death's doorstep. The gates of death are so beautiful. All those lights. Wow. <laughs> I know. I guess the reason I wanted to make sure we read that whole little passage is this isn't to detract from the vitality of just the topic of these books. But I think it's also impressive just how magical a writer Mukasanga oh, is. Absolutely. These are all written with tenderness, care, and affection to the subject matter and how I can convey that in language. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Stump, you know, translated that. It's just amazing to me. It That's really is. That opening. Yeah. No, it's really good. I had another passage that comes, like you said, they, they touch on different topics. So this is from the section called Fear. And you talked about how for for years and decades they had to live with this idea of knowing that eventually you know something like this would happen and this just i think this this paragraph kind of shows you what a toll that took on people um so it says when dawn came we were greatly surprised to find ourselves lying fully clothed side by side and this is when the soldiers are starting to you know do that series of of terrorism that that keeps people awake at night and so they never know on any given day what's going to happen and so there's a particularly violent stretch where they all go to bed and they basically don't know if they're going to wake up so i'll start that over when dawn came we were greatly surprised to find ourselves lying fully clothed side by side the women were already at work in the back courtyard 
There was no one to stop us from running out to the dirt road. We found the village and all its houses still there, no different from what they were the day before. We still suspected our persecutors of trying to trick us. We didn't dare go any further, out to the empty houses, but little by little came reassuring news. A few of the men had ventured as far as Niamata. They'd seen no soldiers or militiamen on the road. The Niamata market was bustling as always. At noon, the alarm was lifted. The days ahead would be hard because we'd used up all of our provisions to face the great fear. Now we would go back to a life lived on borrowed time, back to the everyday fear. They hadn't come this time, but we knew one day they would. And I just thought, wow, like we, we can go back to regular fear. Like it's not even like we can go back to just our normal lives. Like we can go back to that normal dull threat that something's going to happen. But at least for now, it's not the, the big threat that we know is coming. <laughs> so Ikifu kind of start, you know, as we get into those different topics and she talks about beauty, she moves a little bit away from pure nonfiction, mm-hmm. meaning more memoir uh, type of writing that I think we get in cockroaches and the barefoot woman. And it even ends with what I would say is more of a short story. The one on beauty about a kind of an ill-fated, uh, beautiful uh, Tootsie uh, girl um, who, uh, you know, beauty does not serve them well. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we end that almost felt more like a little story. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's a true story. Um, but a story nonetheless. And it's after these three, the, this tomb of paper that Mukasanga starts to write a little bit more in fiction, mm-hmm. though, again, they, they feel quite this quite similar in content and topics and themes to what we have in cockroaches, the barefoot woman and the Gifu. Uh, the first novel we got of hers in English was our lady of the Nile which she wrote after she wrote those three, you know, nonfiction pieces. And this is the first one that Jill Schoolman, uh, the publisher at Archipelago, uh, learned about and read. She, she got it from Anne Solange Nobel, Noble at, the, uh, at a, a book fair in Europe. Um, she's the rights director at Gallimard, <laughs> Gallimard a French uh, publisher that publishes Mukasonga's work. And gave her the the book to read, and Jill read it on the plane ride home, and says she fell in love with it. This is from a, an article on that that they sent. You know, I, I asked him a little bit about how they came to to know Mukasonga's work, and that was it. She says she fell in love with the Our, Our Lady of the Nile, and so that's the first one they published, and it's translated mm-hmm. by Melanie Mothner, who's an English uh, writer and poet. Uh, that you know, she she published or she translated this first one uh, for Archipelago. And it's the biggest one that we have. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was fantastic as well. I was a little bit worried. I thought, okay, you know, here we go away from all these, these themes and, and this love, this tenderness for her family that, that stands out in, in these first three books to a schoolgirl book in in a Mm -hmm. way, you know, Mm -hmm. we've got, our Lady of the Nile is a is an all girls Catholic boarding school in Rwanda um, during the period leading up to the Rwandan genocide, mm-hmm. and we get a little bit of that in Cockroaches because that's where uh, Scholastique goes, not to Our Lady of the Nile, but you know to something no. similar. But clearly, <laughs> there's an autobiographical right. yeah, element to it for sure. 
And I don't know. What did you What did you think of Our Lady of the Nile as a as a different feel uh, to go through some of these same themes? Yeah, it was like you said. It it was like taking a different lens to look at the same themes, and there's clearly a lot of like I said autobiographical elements into it. But I feel like she's kind of expanding and and, and playing with that a little bit. But yeah, like you mentioned, I mean, the setting of it is so unique because it's kind of up in this more mountainous region. It's what they describe as, you know, near the source of the Nile is where this school has been created. And it's it shows a lot about kind of the the Catholic and the Belgian influence on this region, which is a theme that also continues to kind of flare up throughout all of these books and that that tension between more traditional beliefs in and the history in the region versus, you know, these these white people coming in and basically, you know, pushing forth their their ideas and their religions and things like that. And so in this institution of the school, obviously they have a lot of a lot more control over the children. And so there's that element of it, kind of that authoritarian. But even within the school, you know, you can start to see there's like the usual cliques that would happen in a school, you know, the the popular girls, the less popular girls, but underlying all of that is obviously the tension between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And again, you can see some of the autobiographical nature because in, in one of her books, she talks about how she went through a similar experience where no matter what she did, she thought maybe this would be a chance going to school to kind of start over. And she said, no, it followed me everywhere. There was no way to hide who I was in my background, but there are girls who kind of will take her under their wing and provide a little bit of protection, which is something that happens in Our Lady of the Nile. But it's also just that tenuous, there's a safety there, but you can always feel just bubbling under the surface that it's not always that way. There is <laughs> one girl who's, you know, they're all pretty well off in this book. You know, a lot of them come from fairly privileged backgrounds, but Immaculata, I believe is her name. In particular, she's, you know, very rich and she is a Hutu and she continues to kind of push back. There's these quotas requiring two Tutsi students for every 20 students. Right. And she is very public about the political nature of this. And she says something like that's that's a Belgian thing. You know, she's very dismissive and, and kind of cynical about it and doesn't like this idea. And you get the impression that that obviously didn't all arise from her. It's coming from home, from her dad, who's a powerful politician and things like that. So even though that a lot of times these school novels can give you a feeling of kind of, it's a world of its own and it's isolated and there's all these intrigues and, and gossip. There's a little bit of that, but you can just tell that they are not that far removed from everything else that's going on in the country. So I thought that was one of the really interesting things about it. And like I said, also just that, that tension that's a theme throughout all these books between Catholicism and, and white people coming into the country and kind of telling them you're wrong or, you know, the, what you've always been taught, those are just old wives tales or, or that's, you know, <laughs> stories. And, and this is the truth, you know, that kind of thing that I thought was a really fascinating theme throughout this as well. So I, I shared my thoughts on all of these just brief thoughts on mm-hmm. Instagram and there's a, another user there, the Mona Fisa, <laughs> hmm. who says, my favorite Mukasanga, the way she pulled off using the politics of girlhood as a microcosm for a hefty topic like the Rwandan genocide is just mm-hmm. brilliant. And it does, it kind of goes both ways. You can see how the politics of the country, the the hatred, the racism, the 
you know, that sometimes violence, or in the case of Immaculata, the, the, the hopefully the a little bit of the other side of all of that uh, with the Hutu, um, how that plays out in these girls' lives and their perspectives on each other, mm-hmm. uh, but also it the school it's this story is like a microcosm of what's going on larger in the country. It, it's, it's really, really well done. Yes. Uh, yeah. I was just going to say, there's that, that man, um, Monsieur de Fontenelle who mm-hmm. lives outside and he is kind of this fascinating character. Who's he's creepy. He kind of lures yeah. these girls out there and he will have them like dress up so that he can kind of play these roles of, of his views of, it's almost kind of like the myths of what white people think that African women should be like. And it's, you know, like he'll, it, it crosses many lines of, into far beyond creepiness. Like I, it's, in, you know, he ends up like drugging some of them and things like that. But there's this section where I thought it really digs into what we've been saying about this idea of what the white people coming in expect and view versus the reality. And it says, You know what happened to us, Tootsie, when some agreed to play the role the whites assigned to us? My grandmother told me how when the whites arrived, they thought we were dressed like savages. They sold glass beads, loads of pearls, and tons of white cloth to the women, the chief's wives. They showed them how to wear it all and how to fix their hair. They turned them into the Ethiopians, the Egyptians they'd come all this way to seek. Now they had their proof. They dressed them to fit their own delusions. And I thought, wow, like they dress them to fit their own delusions. That's just so powerful. And it, it ties into so much of like all of this. They they want to change them and, and introduce Catholicism and all these other ideas. But at the same time, they also have this idea of, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily, it might not be the right word, but like the noble savage or, or some kind of like this mythos of what they're going to c- come into. And as they point out there, it's not even the right part of Africa. They, they want them to turn into Egyptians or whatever vision they had of, of what it would be like when they get there. So I thought that those sections with um, where the girls are lured over by that, that man, just not only are they creepy, but it also ties into that whole idea of the manipulation of people coming in the colonization of coming in and, you know, not only saying what you believe is wrong, but like also this distorted view of what they think they should be. And it's in the so the first three books we just talked about, they, they you know it touches on the colonization a little bit I think, but it is Our Lady of the Nile and Kibogo in particular that we see how much of what happened there is rooted in the Belgian colonization efforts, mm-hmm. some of the horrors and, and the the evangel evangelism of the the you know I don't know if it was all Catholics but I'll just, so I'll just say you know the Christian you know, European Christian, probably U S as well Mm -hmm. going in there and saying, here's the way it should be. We're here to save you. Get rid of all those old things. Oh, you Tootsies sure do like, sure do look like you're the children of ham Mm -hmm. and how that pernicious seed is, is a big, you know, some of the big reason why it was okay. Then, you know, if they're the, if they're part of this, you know, ill-fated line of you know that goes all the way back to the old testament and to ham and to cain and all this stuff well it's probably okay if they're exterminated i mean how awful to see this uh, you know i am i have 
strong feelings against um, so much of, of what we see here for, for multiple reasons. But yes, I'm sure it's a lot from books like this and other other things of just, you know, swooping in, thinking you have all the answers and all the ways, and it's just so destructive. It's so it um, ignorant and arrogant and and just just horrific. And it really shows up in these two books. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know... I don't know if I ever would have imagined that the consequences could be as horrific just by, you know, saying something ignorant and racist and, you know, scientifically just stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but boy, it sure played out in, in all of this. I know. Well, and there's another section again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers about this, but there's a section later in our lady of the Nile where some of the, there's a, basically an uprising and, Mm-hmm. Many of the students and, and the people in the surrounding areas, you know, attack the school and are, are basically going after them. And I believe it's in Cockroaches where that's clearly an echo of something that actually happened, you know, to her, where she ended up having to run run away and escape. And she, you know, found um, refuge with this family. And it's just amazing. Some of these, you know, it's based in reality, but to read a fictional account that's that powerful and that Mm -hmm. dramatic. And then to find out, no, I mean, that is very clearly marked in something that not only happened in the country, but happened to her as the author. It's amazing. It's, it adds a whole another level to what would already be a very, you know, I don't know. Compelling is not the right word, but a powerful scene. And and, and if, if, if it was purely fiction, I guess you could say it was compelling, but that's what's underlying through all of these, even the fictional, you know, the short stories and, and the novel is, you know, that all of it, or at least the vast majority of it is rooted directly in reality. So it's a very jarring experience to read through it. You bring up something that might, might be worth talking about for a minute. Sorry, that sounded really patronizing. You oh. brought up something that might be worth talking Finally. about. Finally. Sorry, that, that came out just completely wrong. <laughs> no. Something I had not considered, but that I might want to, to think about for a minute. Maybe that's a little bit better way of putting it, um, which is how difficult it is to talk about these books without sound, you know, trying to skirt around how best to explore how, how much we love them, how much we recommend them, how compelling they are, you just say. But those aren't really the right words. You know, you mm-hmm. use that like, oh, yeah, and the Lord of the Rings sure is compelling. You know, the right. relationship between Sam and Frodo sure is beautiful. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's different. Um, those words are inadequate to express the the reason for all of these thoughts and how vital this is and how beautifully written they are and how, you know, much we enjoyed them in quotes. Those those words just don't also cover the the reverence that I think we should, and I think we both hopefully feel mm. uh, toward the topics and the sorrow and the grief. Yeah, and yeah, it's tough to it's tough to find the right words that without making it sound like oh yeah. And I, and part of the reason I think it's tough, and this is what I was talking about earlier that I hadn't really considered is. I don't know. I've never lived through anything at all like this. So for exactly. me to sit down and go, this sure is good. Thanks for bringing me this. You know, all I had to do is sit in my house and you showed up and gave me this beautiful story. Thank you so much. It still sounds so patronizing yeah. and, you know, insufficient and, 
I don't know. It that's where I get just I don't even know how to talk about these because I don't I almost don't deserve your beautiful tributes to your family. Not that I, I don't, know. but I just mean I don't I know. know. I, I'm no. having a trouble figuring out how to talk about it. No, I think that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought it up. I I felt that from the beginning with this. That just there's a responsibility, I feel like, in having a privilege to even to read about it and to talk about it, I feel a responsibility to try to to do justice to just, you know, I don't even know how to do it, but to her, it's a very personal experience for her that she has shared with the world. And so I think it's a responsibility Mm -hmm. to make sure that I try to do my best to convey how much I appreciate it. I also think that there's a responsibility, despite these tough topics for what you talked about, you know, where we grew up and, and the views that we may have had on this, I think it's important to learn about it and acknowledge it and not pretend it didn't happen. You know, so I do think that there's that level as well. But like you said, it's 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 hard to balance the respect and, and the love that I have for this as as literature. But at the same time, like we talked about, it's it's all rooted in these very yeah. personal and powerful things. Um, I don't know. Just one, I was going to go back real quickly to Igifu there in the, in the section on grief, it's talking about what you were saying about the Western view of what happened there. And I just thought it might be a good time. So it says on the TV, on the radio, they never called it genocide as if that word were reserved too serious, too serious for Africa. Yes, there were massacres, but there are always massacres in Africa. And these massacres were happening in a country no one had ever heard of a country. No one could find on a map, tribal hatreds, primitive atavistic hatreds nothing to understand there quote some weird stuff is going on where you people come from people would tell her Hmm. and so it's just you know i thought i thought that tied in a little bit to this conversation because it's just that's where i think the value that she's bringing in just the importance of like you said i mean you know we were probably what in high school when this happened and so you know you would see maybe on cnn or a headline in the newspaper but I think a lot of, of Western eyes were exactly what they just said there. Like, Oh, you know, stuff happens over there in Africa. It's there's, yeah. there's a lot going on, but the, the word genocide, that's a little strong, but there's a point several times with throughout these books, there are some comparisons between what happens here and, and kind of, you know, what's happened to Jewish people. And there's even a part when we get into Kabogo where one of the characters kind of starts to draw these connections between the Jewish people and what's happening there. And she uses the word, the final solution. I don't remember where it is in this, but for what happened in Rwanda. And so I think that's where it's just the, the enormity of what happened, I think is sometimes easy to dismiss if you weren't living in that part of the world or you didn't have a direct connection. But I think that's what I find so amazing about what she's done is she, she brings it to you and makes you realize the enormity of what this is. And and something like saying the final solution is not too strong. That's not something you would normally bring up as a comparison for almost anything. But in this particular case, just the sheer devastation and, and the genocide that did happen, you know, makes you realize, wow, this, this was much mm-hmm. bigger than I had any idea about. Yeah, I was writing about the wolves being reintroduced into <laughs> that mm-hmm, region. Exactly. Not that that didn't have implications and, you know, didn't deserve it, but anyway. Right. No. Um, so 
let's touch on Kibogo a little bit before we, mm-hmm. we run out of, of the episode. This book is told in four sections and they all kind of circle around um, a, a singular story. Mm-hmm. I thought this book was fantastic. I, I had not read it. You know, it came out from Archipelago uh, last fall in a translation by Mark Polizzotti. And I thought that this was just a fantastic... First, I, I thought it was a book of short stories for some reason. Mm. It's not. They're they are connected and they're, it's one to the next one. But where the other books we've talked about deal primarily with the impending horror and the horrors of the Rwandan genocide, this one goes back to colonialism and mm-hmm. to the 1940s uh, during Belgian colonial rule. In in 43 and 44, there was a drought and an accompanying famine called the Ruza Gayura famine. And that's the first section of this book. It's called um, Ruza Gayura or something, how to say that. I don't mm-hmm. know how to say it. Um, and that, that famine was made worse because the Belgian authorities were not only, not only was it just an actual famine, like it would have been horrific anyway, but what little resources and food they did manage to grow was being shipped off to other countries to, in particular to the Belgian Congo to support the war effort there. So these, these people just weren't getting anything. They needed rain desperately. And so there's kind of a beginning of a myth Mm -hmm. where Kibogo um, is, goes up to the mountain and is, you know, I don't know exactly how it all happens, and I don't think the answer is in the book, but is sacrificed or, or you know, sacrifices himself, himself mm-hmm. uh, in order to bring the rain, and the rain comes. And this is a very scary story for all of the Christian missionaries <laughs> yes. who are also trying to, to rule in Rwanda. It's not just the political leaders of Belgium and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the Christian uh, missionaries too. And the second section there is, I think it's called Akayezu. I can't remember the, all the titles, but mm-hmm. anyway, that there's, that means little Jesus. Yezu mm-hmm. is Jesus and Akayezu is little Jesus. It comes in and, and he is a seminarian, you know, he's, he's part of the, the Christian church, but he's also part of this community. And so he's kind of putting these stories together of Kibogo and he's going to return someday. He saved us, you know, he, uh, baptism by water and mm-hmm. here's his, his, his virgin bride and all these things and how, again, that, that offered hope to many people, but it had to be a story that they told just at night. Yes. And it, this is how this book continues. And so you get these variations on this, this, you know, salvation myth that are also mixed and layered with the Christian uh, uh, salvation story. And it just, it's, it's so good. Uh, I don't know. I I thought that it was, it was fantastic. And again, dealing with how this, this in some ways plays a role in what's coming over the next half century. Yeah. You know, this 50 years before the, the, the main, you know, the, the horrors of 1994. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it plays a role in it. Yeah, no, exactly. From the the front flap, I like this. It says, Kibogo's tale is at once an origin myth, a celestial marvel, and a source of hope. And for the white priests who spritz holy water on shriveled trees, it's considered forbidden, satanic, a witch doctor's hoax. Mm -hmm. 
And I really like that. It's it, that does carry through. And like you said, what I like about her, you mentioned her subtlety earlier is it could just be, you know, Christianity versus these other stories and kind of just pitted against each other in a very black and white way. But what I really like is, is the layers and the subtleties of the different villagers in some ways they're, they're willing to listen to the priests and they'll buy into some of it, but they're Mm -hmm. not going to let go of all their past. And so there's like, they'll, they'll keep their medallions or, or certain things that have been with their family for generations, but you know, they're still willing to listen to this other stuff. And then what I like is there'll be like a group of old men sitting around, like in one of the sections, they're sitting around trying to tell somebody the story of Kibogo and how it happened. And one of them will start talking and then the other one's like, no, no, that's not what happened. And then he'll give his version. And then another one's like, well, you almost got it right. But actually, you know, on this part, and I really love kind of this, the way that these origin myths evolve through kind of this oral tradition there's different layers added on, there's nuances, different families or different parts of the village might have a slightly different variation of it. And I really like how that is kind of contrasted with the same thing that's going on with, you know, the Christian missionaries coming in and, and they each have their own little version of the of the Christian story and how they use that to mani- manipulate things. So I really liked that she could have made it just an us versus them or something like that. But no, it's very much showing the integration of how all that worked and how complex and complicated and messy it is. I thought that was just masterfully done. And then on top of that, like you said, the different sections will like the first one is the tale of the origin myth, but then it'll jump ahead in time and it'll show, you know, somebody talking about that and it, it shows down the road, how it might've evolved and different people are viewing it differently. And there's a section at the end where, a group of white researchers come up, come in and at least in theory, they're very respectful. They're trying to keep these stories alive and they want to go see these holy sites where this might've happened or, or where the legend says that it happens. But I like how, even as they're doing it, they're kind of messing it up and and stomping all over things, even though they're trying to do the right thing. And and they're not even getting the right stories. The, the youths that are guiding them have their own ideas as to what, (laughs) what happened or, right. or what's the best story to tell these people. <laughs> exactly. And they, they, you know, they basically, they're like three hooligans and nobody else really wants to like show them this holy site, but they just, they take them up there. Like you said, they get the stories, right. They find some artifacts that may or may not be related to that story. <laughs> but then what I really like, you know, again, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but at the end when they're up there on the mountain with the, with the researchers, they have been taking a very scientific, straightforward approach, but then this fog moves in and they all kind of panic and, and they, they take off down the mountain and it's just, it leaves this like question mark of like, there <laughs> still be some mystical things that are going on up there. So I don't know. That's what I mean about like, no matter what she's doing, she is countering it with a little bit of attention, a little bit of a messiness that I thought was yeah. just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, one other thing, there, there's a part in Cockroaches where I think one of her neighbors or friends goes back, you know, who wasn't there during the genocide, goes back to to try and find family and is asking the Hutu neighbors, you know, hey, do you know what happened to them? And they're like, I'm not going to talk. Mm-hmm. And they kind of realize they, they probably feel implicit or com- complicit in this. And maybe, maybe this is the one who actually killed my family. I don't right. know. Ugh. And so I there's a part where he says, I am not here. I, I don't remember the words and I don't have it in front of me, but it's basically, I, I'm not here 
to to seek who did this. Mm-hmm. I'm here to find my family. Yeah. And I felt like that kind of is a part of all of these works too. I mean, she's not shying away from the horrors and she's not shying away from the evils. But I think she's also saying these are not the the goal of me writing all of this isn't also just to hammer who was wrong. You can mm-hmm. read that in the pages. It's there, some of right. it, you know, but it's it's complicated. I think she would maybe say a little bit, not that it's, well, again, I feel like I'm trying to almost defend something awful, and I don't think that's the point. I, I don't think I am, and I don't think she is either. Mm-hmm. But I think what she's saying is there's also other things that I need to do here besides mm-hmm. just that. And that comes out in all of these in, in a way that I, I love. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really excited that there's more coming from her. Do you want to talk about that for a minute or do you have something else before we get to that point? Well, the only other thing I'll say is just there was a story in Igifu, the one that I touched on a minute ago called Grief. And I feel like we talked about the autobiographical nature of some of the short stories in the fiction. That one is basically the tale of a woman who very much like Scholastique was sent away and, and escaped all the genocide and she's living with the guilt of it. And so she goes to the funerals of people where she's living now. I don't remember if it's in France. I believe it is. She hasn't been able to properly mourn for her family because I think it's just too much for her to comprehend. So she'll go to the funerals of other people that she doesn't even know and sit in the back row and cry so loudly that sometimes she's asked to leave. I, that was one of the most powerful stories I think I've ever read. I I loved, loved, loved that story. And then that character goes back to Rwanda and obviously, you know, mirroring what happened to Scholastique Mukasonga is kind of digging through the remains of, of what's left as well. That story to me was just, there was a lot of high points, but that was one of the very high points of, of this whole reading experience for me. I thought it was absolutely amazing, but yeah, well, I think we do. We need to talk about some exciting mm-hmm. news that you heard. Well, so she has three other books that are untranslated into English. There's a 2014 collection of short stories. At least I, I think they are. I thought Kibogo was, but mm. <laughs> it's uh, it's called Sekamemorin Les Collines, which is essentially, I think, what the hills whisper. Mm. And that's a 2014 collection of short stories. And then there's 2016 novel Cour Tambour, which is like heart drum. And then in 2022, so Kiboko actually was published in, in French in 2020. So it's, you know, it's her most recent one to arrive in English is also one of her more recent ones. So I wondered, are are we skipping those? You know, they not, are they not happening? Um, But I I wrote to Archipelago and they said, no, they they actually have the rights for the, the, what the Hills whisper. Um, that's a collection of short stories, which will be coming out, you know, sometime in the next few years in a translation by Mark Polizzati. And also for her newest book, Sister Deborah, from, that was published in France in 2022, just last year. And this is apparently a sequel to Kibogo. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, wow. I can't either. Yeah, that's they, exciting. They, they do not yet have the, um, they have not yet purchased their translation rights to Cour Tambour, that 2016 novel. But who knows, maybe someday that'll happen too. But in the next few years, you know, maybe 2024, 2025, something like that, hopefully. They mm-hmm. didn't tell me, but I'm just, you know, if you're listening, 
folks. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're anxiously awaiting, but take your time. Um, Absolutely. We've got two coming in the short term. Yeah, that's so exciting. And this feels like a kind of an ancillary thing to say about these books, but Archipelago, like I was just looking at this collection and, and they're just <laughs> the covers and, and the colors and everything. These are just like little gems, you know, both inside and out. They're just gorgeous. So I, I am so happy to hear that there's going to be more coming yeah. along from them soon. Yeah. I mean, take again, it's hard to talk about all this without feeling like you're maybe missing the point or dismissing yeah, what exactly. you should that the gravity, but boy, these are just beautiful books, you know, mm-hmm. as physical objects as well. Mm-hmm. Um, again, seems not very important in the, in the grand scheme of things and it isn't, but it is, it is nice as well. You know, I, I love them. They're, they're yeah. the art on the front of some of these. Oh my word. I, I, I love know. the picture on the front of, of Ikifu. I was just I, looking I just at that. I do too. It's amazing. Yeah. And I mean, like you said, there's, they're hard to talk about only because of, I, w- I want to make sure I'm respectful and, and give them the, mm-hmm. the reverence that I feel like they deserve. But I thought maybe a good way to kind of start closing this out was clearly they are that love letter and that remembrance, but also it's her continuing to deal with all of this that she has been left with. And I thought the very end of, of cockroaches is just amazing. She says, Yes, I am indeed the one they called by her Rwandan name, the one given by my father, Mukasonga. But now, deep inside, like the most precious part of me, I hold what's left of the lives and the names of all those in Gitwe and Gitagata and Sihoa who will never be properly buried. The murderers tried to erase everything they were, even any memory of their existence. But in the school child's notebook that I am now never without, I write down their names. I have nothing left of my family and all the others who died in Niamata, but that paper grave. And I think it's so tragic, but it also just shows how important her work is, is all that's left is this paper grave. These people that will not be forgotten thanks to the work that she has done and the time that she has spent dealing with this, you know, in her own life and just, oh, it, it's so powerful and so important that she has done this. And I, I just feel very privileged to have been able to, to read them. Yeah, that's well put. And I think you're right. A great way to wrap it up. I'm excited for the next ones to come um, because this project of reading one after the other, kind of devoting the time to it. One of my favorite reading projects I've done in a long time or ever, Me too. you know, it's just, just fantastic. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to be remembering it for a long time. And again, just continuing to look forward to what she's doing and yeah, it's nice to be a part of it. And thank you, Paul. You're the one who recommended that we, Mm -hmm. we have her be this particular, uh, segments author focus. It was very, it was time very well spent. Absolutely. Thank you. I enjoyed it too. I didn't know that I would go back and read a couple that I'd already read and I ended up reading all five, like just (laughs) like you did within the last month. And if anyone out there is wondering about the possibility of doing that, if I would highly recommend doing it there, they are slim. There's Mm -hmm. a lot in there, but reading them all in a row like this added so many layers and I was able to make some connections that there's no way I would have made otherwise if I hadn't read them like this. So if you're feeling up to it and interested, I would absolutely encourage people to to give that a try. It was like you said, one of, one of the best reading experiences of my life. And you said compelling. I I think on Wednesday of this week, um, I sent you a Marco Polo saying, Hey, I've got 
two more sections of Kibogo left. I've got the you know second to last one and the last one, which is about half the book, 75 pages. And I said, I'm going to read one of them tonight and then I'll finish it up on Thursday. Well, I finished you know the third section at about 10 o'clock, 10.30, and I just kept on going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I finished Kibogo all in one fell swoop on that Wednesday night just because... I didn't really want to leave it. You know, I wanted to keep going. And uh, I found that with many of these, like Mm -hmm. sitting down and and opening them up and and starting, it was, it it was surprising sometimes how much I would be able to get through in what felt like a relatively short period of time. They're, they are slim. They are, um, but but they're so compelling in, in that way that they kind of open up something in you that, that, needs to be explored that needs Absolutely. you need to kind of dwell in and mm. yeah just just fantastic so so thanks for recommending it paul yeah, we'll, we'll we're trying still to figure out the next one i know we've got javier marias coming up sometime maybe the next one or maybe the one after that and we're batting around ideas for if not him in you know june or thereabouts when we'd get to the next one then who yeah. we've got some ideas we'll keep we we'll keep folks in 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 the loop as best we can. Um, someone, someone mentioned, you know, maybe some Barbara Pym or something like that. So that wouldn't that break might my heart. Be coming. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, thanks for your time today, Paul. Yeah, thank we'll you. talk to you soon. All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.